Our first and only Bible reading this morning um, and text for the sermon is from Genesis chapter 37. And we're going to read the first 11 verses. So Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 to 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So far, the word of God. The sermon I have the privilege of reading this morning uh, is titled Hope for Unhappy Families and was written by the Reverend Andrew DeVries. It's one in a series that I will probably bring over a period of time. Some of the most popular shows of the 50s and 60s were based on the lives of families. Some of you might remember Leave It to Beaver or The Donna Reed Show. Then there was the family drama called Father Knows Best. Hard to believe that would get on TV today. And each of these pictured family life as rather idyllic. It was seemingly always peaceful. There were good relationships. There was no domestic violence or great fits of anger. If a problem did come up, it could easily be solved in 30 minutes. They were happy families. Well, that's not what we see as we study the Joseph narratives. Here we meet a very unhappy family. As the drama begins, it's not simply unhappiness, is it? It's raw, concentrated, overt hatred. Hatred that's going to lead to tragedy for Joseph. But I love the story of Joseph because unlike the patriarchal narratives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that come earlier in the book of Genesis, where you get little episodes and it's sometimes difficult to see how it all fits together, the Joseph narratives are one big drama that is clearly all connected. It's got everything we like in a good drama. There's conflict. There's bad guys. 
There's really bad guys. There's someone suffering a great misfortune. There's sexual temptation. There's a rags to riches story. And at the heart of the book, there's reconciliation. There is a happy ending. It's just a great story. You can read it to the kids and they're enthralled by it. It's the kind of stuff that makes for a great Broadway musical. But it's much more than a gripping Broadway drama. And that is what the musical Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat doesn't get. This is not all about Joseph and his coat. This is not simply Joseph's drama. It's God's drama. This is part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Part of the thrill of the drama is how he takes this dysfunctional family. He takes the mess, the jealousies, the deceptions, the lies, and he sweeps them all up in his purposes to redeem a people to be his very own. And more than that, part of their lives, sorry, part of the drama is how he works in this dysfunctional family, in the heartache of their lives, and through the sin they commit, he begins to transform them. He takes them through the school of suffering and moulds them according to his purposes. There is hope for unhappy families. But that's not where the story starts. It starts with the favouritism of the father. So firstly, let's look at dad's favourite. We're told right up front of the problem that's going to explode into the drama that lasts for the rest of the book of Genesis. It's the seething hatred that Joseph brothers have for him. And this hatred stems from one thing. Joseph is daddy's favourite. Part of the reason that he is the favourite is because he's the son of Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel. You'll recall that Jacob had a pretty complex family life. He'd been deceived into marrying plain, Rachel, um, plain Leah. Although Leah was very fertile and bore him six sons, he always favoured Rachel. But she didn't bear him any children initially. He also had two children through his concubine Zilpah and another two through his concubine Bilhah. Finally, Rachel gave birth to Joseph and then she died giving birth to the twelfth son of Jacob, Benjamin. So by the time Joseph is 17 years old, his mother is dead, he's got three stepmums, he's got ten brothers who hate his guts, and a father who treats him like the golden child. You think your family has problems? Well, there are big problems here. This favouritism should, should really surprise us. Because Jacob should have known better. He too came from a family where mummy and daddy had favourites. Mummy loved Jacob and Daddy loved Esau. And remember what kind of relationship that produced between Jacob and Esau. Esau wanted to kill his brother and they were estranged for over 20 years and now Jacob is repeating the same mistakes in the upbringing of his own children. Isn't that the sad thing about sin the sinful behaviour of pa behavioural patterns of our parents? As hard as we try, so often we find ourselves doing the same things they were doing. Something comes out of our mouths and we stop and we think, that's exactly what my dad or mum used to say. Children, perhaps you think to yourself as you look at your parents and you see their flaws and you say to yourself, I'll never do that. Well, maybe, maybe by the grace of God, you won't repeat their mistakes. 
but you will have your own sinful ways of relating to your own children, should the Lord determine to give you any. Joseph received a gift that highlighted his special status in the family. Verse 3 described it as a richly ornamented robe. That's how it was in Andrew's translation. We typically think of it as being a coat of many colours because of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But the Hebrew word really describes a coat that marks someone out as management. It showed they were not like the plebs, the working class. They were above that. The only other place in the Bible where the word is used is in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 18, where Princess Tamar is wearing a richly ornamented robe. So this is the kind of robe that royalty wears. It's probably a robe of extra length and extra long sleeves rather than a colourful robe. So this is not just about Joseph being daddy's favourite. This robe marks him out as having a special status among the brothers. He's the ruler over the family. Son number 11 is actually being chosen as son number 1. No wonder the brothers were upset. So this is not simply a story warning parents not to show favouritism. And it can be a temptation for us, can't it? Some children are just easier to get along with than others. They match our temperament better. And so we might want to treat them differently. But that's not the main point here. The main point is that Jacob is choosing Joseph as the preeminent one among the other brothers. It is wrong to show favoritism, and Jacob did have a problem with that. But what I'm talking about now is not favoritism, it's choice. Verse 3, Joseph is called the son of his old age. This echoed the language of Isaac, who was born to Abraham in his old age. And who was Isaac? Isaac was the promised one of God, through whom God would keep his promise to bring forth a seed, a man who would crush the serpent's head and bring blessing to the world. So Jacob believes that Joseph has a special place in ensuring the promise of God will come to pass. And that's exactly what we see in the ensuing chapters. God doesn't have favourites, but he does make choices. Sometimes we can think that God has favourites. We can look at the lives of other Christians and we think they've got it so easy. They must be God's favourites. They have a good family. They have a nice job. They're always healthy. They get to go on overseas holidays. But me, life's so hard. We always struggle to make ends meet. My job is so unrewarding. I wish I was born in a different family because mine is so messed up. Well, your assessment is wrong. If God has chosen you to be part of his family in the Lord Jesus Christ, he loves you with the same kind of love that he shows all his children. Your circumstances aren't the gauge of his love. The cross is always the gauge of his love. On the cross, he shows that he's willing to give each of his children what is most precious to him. Jesus' life poured out for our sin. And every one of his children receives the same gift. God doesn't have favourites. If he has chosen you, he loves you with the same love that he loves his one and only son. That love is the same whether you are a pleasant child, a dysfunctional child, or the most difficult child in the family. 
So that's dad's favorite, daddy's favorite. Now let's consider the dreamer. Dreams actually pay, play quite a role in the story of Joseph. First we have Joseph's dreams. Then later on we get the dreams of Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and baker in chapter 40. Then we get the dreams of Pharaoh himself. All through the narrative, these dreams aren't just weird things that we remember briefly in the morning before they disappear from our consciousness. They are messages from God. They are God revealing his purposes and his plans before they come to pass. Now that doesn't mean you need to start analysing your dreams from last night and trying to work out what God is trying to tell you about your future. This was a feature of God's communication to people that was unique to this time in history. He doesn't work the same way in all the ages. We'll talk about more this more later on in the series. So just consider these comments a bit of a teaser on dreams for some time in the future. So let's have a look at the dreams. Firstly, there is a dream where the brothers are working out in the fields. Joseph's sheaves stand up and all the other sheaves bow down to him. You can imagine Joseph coming down from breakfast one morning and as the family sits down, he says, guess what I dreamed last night? Do you notice he doesn't need to interpret it for his brothers? They know what it means. You're going to rule over us. Really? You've got to be kidding. And they hated him even more. But then comes dream number two. And the message is essentially the same. Joseph is going to rule. But now it's not just going to be 11 brothers bowing before him. It's the sun and moon, mum and dad as well. And in a patriarchal society, this idea was absolutely outrageous. This would be like saying in our day and age that parents have authority over the family, that children are not free to do their own are not free to do their own thing, but should listen to mum and dad. And if they don't, mum and dad are responsible to discipline them appropriately. Outrageous words. That's what this sounded like to Jacob's to Jacob as well. So he rebukes Joseph. He says, "That's enough, son." But Jacob also kept the matter in mind. He thought, there might be more to this. And this is the same thing that Mary does after Jesus stays in Jerusalem to teach the teachers. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, we're told she treasured all these things in her heart. Both Jacob and Mary ponder what these things might mean for their special children. Now Joseph gets a really bad rap at this point when you read a lot of the commentaries. He tells his brothers his dreams and the commentators call him all kinds of nasty things. They say he's a spoiled brat, he's arrogant, he's a boastful young man who needs to be put in his place. He was a foolish 17 year old who should have kept his mouth shut. Well maybe some of these things are true. But I can't find those words in the text. Perhaps he was just excited to get some dreams like this. Perhaps he just liked sharing things with the family that he felt were good to share. I bet if you'd had a pretty inter interesting dream, you might want to share it with the family as well. But the point here is not that we're meant to make an assessment of Joseph's character. The point is that these dreams are from God. 
We've just seen that Joseph has given that Jacob has given Joseph a coat to mark him out as the chosen one, the one who will be instrumental in bringing forward God's promises. And what are these dreams? These dreams are God saying, I agree. Joseph is my chosen one. Joseph is the one I choose to bring to continue to bring forward my plan. He's the one I'm going to use to bring my people down to Egypt as I promised Abraham. He's the one I'm going to use to bring my people into a place where they can become a great nation, a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's the one I've chosen to ensure my people remain alive so that through them the promised one will come, the one who will bring blessings to all the earth. The way I'm going to do this is to make Joseph a great ruler, one to whom even his family will bow down before him. These dreams are about God revealing his choice is Joseph to fulfil his promises. And the brothers of Joseph just couldn't swallow that choice. They hated it. In many ways, Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. His life is a pattern of the life and ministry of Jesus, the pattern of humiliation before exaltation. Jesus came to bring God's plan of redemption. His claim to the world to be God's chosen one, the Messiah, come to fulfil all God's plans and purposes for his people. That claim seemed arrogant and boastful to, uh, to Jesus' contemporaries. He claimed to have authority to forgive sins, to have a special relationship to the Father in heaven, to have existed even before Abraham came into existence. And his contemporary, contemporaries hated him for these claims. It's the same reason the church is despised today. We're accused of being arrogant when we claim that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We're told that we're intolerant because we say Jesus alone is God's choice. The sad thing about all this is that the brothers saw Joseph rule as a threat. They despised it and they wanted to avoid it because they thought it was bad news. But it wasn't. Joseph's elevation was for their blessing. God's choice of Joseph as ruler was their salvation. But the brothers couldn't see it. Now it's the same today. People see God's choice, the rule of Christ, as a threat. If he rules, then there's no more fun for me. If he rules my life, it inhibits my freedom. If he rules, then I can't live my own independent life anymore. Oh, but brothers and sisters, Christ's rule is for our blessing. His reign at the right hand of God the Father is for our good. From there, he sent his spirit into this world. There he intercedes for us. There he is preparing a place for us. There he gives us access to the throne of God Almighty. And he's coming again to sweep us up into the glories of his rule. God's choice as Jesus as a sovereign of this world is not a threat, but a blessing. So that's Daddy's favourite. Then Joseph the dreamer. Now let's consider the hateful brothers. I must confess, I do have some sympathy for Joseph's brothers. They know that Joseph is the favourite. They know that they occupy second place with the father. They even know that they're expendable in the eyes of their father. 
Remember when Jacob goes to meet his brother Esau. Esau is coming out with armed men, possibly with hostile intent. So Jacob splits up the tribe into different groups. And you know who's in the front, don't you? It's the four children born to Bilhah and Zilpah. And who's after that? It's the six children of Leah. Then who brings up the rear in the place of safety, well out of harm's way? It's Rachel and Joseph. So if Esau kills a few in the front group, at least Rachel and the golden boy will get away. That's not an easy environment to grow up in, is it? And now Joseph is God's choice on top of all this. Their hate is perhaps a little understandable. That their hate is mentioned three times highlights the depth of the feeling they had for Joseph. But it is here that we see that this story is not just the story of Joseph. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. The word brothers is mentioned in this chapter 21 times. This story traces the development of the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. What we clearly see here at the start of the story is their intense hatred. In verse 4, we're told that this hatred expressed itself in the fact they couldn't speak a kind word to Joseph. The text literally reads, they couldn't speak shalom, peace, to their brother. That was your typical greeting in Israel, shalom. Like when we arrive at church and we say, good morning. How sad. He comes down to the breakfast table, shalom brothers, and in return he gets a silent treatment. This is not the way it's meant to be in families. Now remember, this is not any old family. This is the beginning of the Old Testament church. Have you ever seen this or experienced this in church? Brothers or sisters who can't even say shalom to each other? Have you ever felt this when you see that church member you've had a disagreement with in the foyer? Or the elder who's had to have some hard words with you? You walk past without making eye contact and pretend you don't hear them when they greet you? But you would never say you'd hate them. I wonder if there is someone here today that you can't say shalom to. I wonder if there is someone in your own family you can't say shalom to. You know, that's a denial of the gospel, don't you? You can't come and sing about being reconciled to God, of the joy of having God as the Father, if you weren't reconciled to another believer. But tragedy turns to triumph as we read the story of Joseph and his brothers. Because slowly but surely, God's grace begins to work itself out in the family. The reason I love this story is that it records one of the most gracious reconciliations in all the Bible. When peace is restored between Joseph and his brothers. It's heart-wrenching. It's glorious. And it's all because of God and his grace. What God is doing here is he's creating the nation of Israel. He didn't make this nation, the Old Testament church, out of fine, upstanding people with traditional family values. He crafted them out of this dysfunctional family, full of hate and envy and every imaginable sin. His purpose was to make one nation, one people, who would be a harmonious family of God, worshipping the Lord and bringing blessings to the nations. And that's his same purpose today. 
In the church, the spiritual descendants of Israel are made by God's grace into one harmonious family of God, made to love one another, made to speak peace to one another, brought into the family of God as brothers and sisters who don't live in enmity, but who live at peace, in union with each other. Isn't that what we sing? How, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith and unity, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the first fruits of his presence here among us. What you notice about the church is that it's made up of very flawed people too. Flawed ministers, flawed elders and flawed families. There is no such thing as a normal family, is there? There are only families full of sinners who need God's grace to come and work in them, to reconcile them to himself and to each other. That's why this is such a wonderful story, because it shows us that there is hope for dysfunctional families. There's hope for our families. There's hope for us as the family of God together. There is hope that God can use us with all our flaws and failures to bring blessing to others and each other. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But this is what the passage teaches us. There is hope that God can come and heal our relationships, restore our love for each other, and build our families and our church into a harmonious worshipping community. This is the God of Joseph. This is our God today. Amen.